we uh, there's not a rule that you have to use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Alrighty, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the third sub. And I guess we'll, we'll keep saying this every episode. This is a very special episode, number twenty, big number. You know how much I like. I like numbers, and I'm your co-host Alexander Gunge Ruzik. I'm here as usual with Samuel Rowan, and I uh, hope you enjoyed last week's episode with the special guest Arjit Johal. But you're in, if you're looking for another guest this week, you're in good uh, good company. We're we're joined this week by Ben Steiner. He's uh he's a youth sports specialist, a soccer specialist. He's written for uh, BTS Ben City before. Uh, he's, he knows his soccer. He knows his youth sports. He knows his hockey. So we're very excited to have Ben on. And uh, how's it going this week, both Sam and Ben? I'll let I'll let Ben go first. Uh, pretty good. I mean, youth sports is all canceled, so I don't really know what we'll talk about. But uh, there is a bit of news. But thanks for having me on the podcast. Sam, how are you doing this week? Yeah, doing pretty well. Obviously, we uh, we woke up Wednesday morning to the ongoing feud between the Athletic and MLS, and and obviously the Athletic leaking the schedule, which then kind of prompted the league to make a release of their own. And so, in in Whitecaps news, we've got the first three matches all set up, which is going to be exciting to dive into a little bit. But obviously, as the cases in Florida continue to be on the rise in relation to COVID. There's still, I think, a lot of concerns amongst players and staff and just general public as to, you know, what the legitimacy of that tournament is. So we're, we'll dive into a bit of that and looking forward to talking with Ben about some, some U sports stuff, because even though obviously they're, you know, Canada West and, and the OUA and, you know, Canadian university sport has announced there won't really be anything going on in the fall. It's a, uh, it's an interesting landscape right now, especially on the soccer front. Where are young guys going to play over the next six, eight months? We really don't know. So we're going to kind of dive into that, talk about some Whitecaps stuff. Really looking forward to it. All right. But yeah, well, since we are a Whitecaps podcast, we will lead off with that. It's, it's, only, it's only tradition. And as, as you alluded to there, the, the Whitecaps did re- receive their fate, at least in terms of what they're going to face down in Orlando. And I think uh, I think we can all agree they did dodge a lot of bullets, both from fans' media perspective, but also from the players' perspective. Because uh, as we talked about, I think, two two weeks ago, uh, the schedule isn't exactly what you'd call balanced. You got the good old 9 a.m. game, and then you got a, whatever, 8, 8, 8 p.m. game, and then a 10.30 p.m. game, which is just, you know, there's there's no good choice there. Obviously, it's Florida. The weather isn't great, and from that from that point of view, it's it's an awesome schedule. But either way, especially if you're out in the PST, you either get the you know the 6:30 or 6 a.m. games, which is just what no one wants, and then you got the the later games, which is what more what we're used to. But luckily for the Caps, if uh, if you guys haven't seen, they got Dallas at FC Dallas on the 9th of July at 10. Uh, Eastern time, so 7 Pacific, basically what we're used to. San Jose on the 15th, same time. And Seattle Sounders on the 20th at the same time as well, which considering that within their own group, I'm pretty sure I think it was Seattle and San Jose are playing at like 6.30 a.m. on one of the days. 
I think the Whitecaps did dodge a bullet, and I think they're going to be all right. You know, they have a good schedule. They have a good group. But, you know, I'm curious to hear from you, Ben, first about this. Kind of what are your thoughts on, you know, the group the Whitecaps have and also their schedule, but also just kind of the tournament itself? Because, you know, it's interesting to see where people stand on this tournament because, you know, kind of as Sam and I have mentioned on the, in the past, you know, we like the tournament from a pure, you know, soccer playing perspective. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's just, you know, there's a lot on our, on our minds. There's a lot to, to watch out for. And I think for that reason, it's definitely going to be maybe, you know, we're going to enter it with more cautious optimism, but kind of what are your general thoughts on the group itself and kind of the schedule that leaked this week? I think it's probably going to be a pretty tough tournament to pull off, just seeing the situation in Florida and really across the United States right now, especially when it comes to COVID numbers and how the citizens of the U.S. are sort of treating the precautions and stuff like that. But on the soccer side of things, I mean, the group, you guys spoke about it last week. Uh, it was random per se. Uh, of course, the Whitecaps put with Seattle and then their sort of makeshift rival in San Jose. So take that for what you will in terms of randomness. Um, but for the match schedule, it's as, as you said, it's as good as they could have hoped for. They're getting familiar-ish times, playing in the evening, whether it's 7.30 or 10.30, it's a familiar time for players to play. They still go through a similar routine during the day. You train in the morning, you go for a walk, you have your dinner, then you play the game. So the routine isn't that thrown awry. Whereas if you're playing at 6.30 in the morning, well, you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning because you have to get to the pitch by 5. And it's just, it, it throws everything um, out the window. But for the Whitecaps, they can keep pretty similar routine. Um, it is a little bit different, though. Something I'll add to that is that uh, Mark DeSantos and his media availability talked about how essentially because they've got that consistency with all three matches, that from the moment they arrive in Orlando, like they're essentially not going to adjust to the Eastern time. They're just going to organize their days and their schedule like it's a 7.30 local start and just kind of they can run that same routine and have the players really in that same cycle. Whereas, as you just said, Ben, if you're an FC Dallas or a Seattle, you know, you're going to have night matches, but then you're also going to have the 4.30 Eastern wake up at some point. And so it, it really could – throw you completely off. And I think it's going to be interesting by the time we get to that Seattle match, what kind of shape is Seattle in just mentally and physically having gone through that versus a Whitecaps team that will have had that consistency throughout. So I think that's something that's going to be interesting to track, not only from just like a kind of mental acuity and sharpness perspective, but also does it, you know, affect players potentially like, are we going to see more injuries in the morning if guys aren't doing the same prep and the same physio and the same stuff before one of those early matches. I mean, only time will tell, but I think it's definitely something to watch. And, and the Whitecaps definitely, as Dos Santos kind of alluded to, I think they got, you know, they got essentially exactly what they were looking for. I also think Mark Dos Santos is probably the perfect coach for this situation as well, because he's coached at the youth levels uh, where you have tournaments like this. He's coached in Brazil where you start games at 10 o'clock, 1030 so he's used to coaching players in a situation like this, and that's an advantage I don't think many teams will have. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's definitely kind of, as he mentioned in his thing, it's definitely going to be one of the bigger challenges as a coach, especially a club team coach, because if you're looking at MLS, not many managers have that tournament experience just because 
tournaments and club football are so different. Like you got the Voyagers Cup, but that's spread out over a month or two months. You know, U.S. Open Cup. Even you go to Europe, your FA Cups. They're all spread out over over a few months. There's rarely those international style tournaments where within 30 days you have to play those seven, eight games. And I think one point I did see is it's going to be interesting to see how a guy like you know Bob Bradley or Bruce Arena, former national team coaches, they've been through the grind of a tournament. If that's going to give them an advantage, but you know. For, for, you know, coaches, other coaches have never been through this before, especially in a club setup. It's going to be very interesting to see how they handle it. And, you know, it, it is kind of, it's going to be unique how it's all within a hub city. You know, there's going to be no travel. Usually in international tournaments, there is, there is travel. So they're going to have to manage just the fact that they're probably going to be sedentary for, you know, a couple of weeks. They're not going to be moving. They're going to have to deal with finding ways to stay, you know, engaged, active, not, you know, it's not stray from the game plan. The thing about a, a 10.30 Eastern start, obviously their bodies might be used to a 7.30 start, but, you know, it, it is still pretty weird to wake up on a game day, have to wait the whole day, and then as soon as it gets dark, you play. You know, your body clock is just going to be like, okay, I kind of want to sleep. I see, you know, naturally when you see the sun go away, you want to sleep. So it's going to be, okay, can the, the players' bodies handle this? Can they, you know, mentally get in a, a rhythm where they can play intense soccer and play at the highest level for MLS? But I think those are all normal you know normal challenges we can expect at this point i think that's just we're gonna see that as the tournament goes on and i think the teams that best prepare themselves for that are you know they're gonna do the best i think that's that's natural but you you do make a good point about the the seattle for example their their schedule is going to be so imbalanced and i do think for that reason the white caps you know as i said earlier they're in a great position i think you know i think they're gonna i think they're gonna do well but i kind of i'll kind of put that a question out there early here but how do you think the white caps will will do in this term how do you think they can do but also how do you think they will do because you know they do they did get a pretty favorable group i think they they are in a pretty darn good position to qualify but how, realistically how do you think they can perform down in orlando i guess you can start yeah with. i guess I'll, I'll take that one first um something to note too that you know if, if the listeners haven't heard yet but you've got multiple players you have at least one confirmed player on fc dallas who's tested positive for covid i think there's rumors that there's multiple players in in a similar position so you've not only got teams struggling with the early start times but you've also got a team potentially dealing with covid issues so i think that you know regardless of the actual quality of these teams you've got other teams that are going to have more serious hurdles to face and i think that if you'd asked me initially when the groups were set before we'd seen the schedule, I would have probably picked a third place finish. But now I think I see the white caps potentially slipping into the top two. I also think that, you know, as you guys mentioned, the way Mark Dos Santos is going to have these guys prepared is pretty much as good as possible. And, uh, and their schedule is very favorable. So I'm going to go for a cautiously optimistic second place finish in the group. I think you probably hit the nail on the head there, Sam. I, when I saw the schedule, it seemed like we were destined for a third place finish while the Whitecaps destined for a third place finish. Um, but as you said, with teams potentially facing t time restraints and time conditions that they're not used to, uh, as well as COVID challenges, a second could be possible. Um, I feel like first, I don't know who's gonna come first. It's not gonna be the Whitecaps though. It will be San Jose, Dallas or Seattle. Probably Seattle, of course, they're coming off a championship. Um, but it, it, it's a weird tournament. But the Whitecaps could find their way into second place. 
And Franco Jara, who's, you know, a, a new addition that FC Dallas has brought in is, is still kind of, I, I don't want to say doubtful, but it's, it's up in the air whether or not he will be available. And that's just another added kind of, you know, bonus for the Whitecaps if they don't have to face a, a quality player like that in Orlando. The only player I could really see the Whitecaps missing would probably be Andy Rose. Um, but when it sounds like Eric, Eric Godoy, from what we heard, is still nursing his, his foot issue. And so I don't know. It's interesting that you actually brought up Andy Rose because they obviously they used him, his face, for the marketing for their schedule. So to me, I don't know. I, it does feel like if they knew something about Andy Rose not participating or not wanting to go down to the tournament, which, I mean, would be perfectly understandable given his young family, given his condition, but I, I don't think they would have used him on the marketing if he wasn't going to go. But it does sound like Eric Godoy, who seems like he's always been, you know, nursing that foot injury. It seems like it just won't go away, but he, he sounds like the one that's still in doubt, which means we may see Maranko Vasilinovich on the pitch, which would be pretty exciting, I think, for Whitecaps fans out there. Well, as it comes to Rose, I did, I, I will mention, I don't know if you guys had a chance to read it, but, uh, you know, friend of the show, JJ Adams, he wrote a, an article, he interviewed Andy Rose this week, and uh, sounds like he's good to go from a health perspective. He's, he's fine with going down. He's ready to manage the, the risks because uh, obviously, you know, he has his, his diabetes, so that does put him at risk for, you know, especially a higher risk for as it comes to COVID, but also the thing with Rose is that his wife's expecting a child in the middle of the tournament. And that's where things get, you know, sticky because families can't really come to this hub plan. You know, it's already is going to be stressed as it is. So as he was saying, it might be tough because somewhere between the second and third game, you know, he's going to have a kid probably. So he might have to leave. And if he leaves to come to Vancouver, he's going to have to quarantine for two weeks and he wouldn't even be able to see the kid anyway. So he's kind of in a, tough spot but yeah besides him and Godoy it's it's a full slate and I think for that I think you can realistically surprisingly expect the Whitecaps to do well I think obviously we don't know what this team is capable of we can't sit here and pretend if we know if they're going to be the next LAFC if they're going to be the next you know 2017 earthquakes and finish with 20 points but I think we can realistically expect this team to compete I think from the two games at the beginning of the season or any indication and now the fact that everyone's kind of they had the chance to integrate their signings, I think this group, for as balanced as it is, there's still some spots. And I think we're going to see if this is the Whitecaps of new or the Whitecaps of old based on how they perform. Because I look at the first two games, uh, Dallas and San Jose. You know, Dallas is always a tough team. You can't count them out. But as you said, they're, they're struggling with COVID-19 right now. You know, they lost some stars over the, the last few years. They're definitely not – the thing with Dallas is, like, they generate academy players like it's FIFA 20 career mode, and it's just these little prospects coming up from everywhere and the 90-rated – I don't know. If you guys play FIFA, you know what I'm, I'm talking about. But, you know, besides that, this doesn't look like the same Dallas of old ever since Luchi Gonzalez left them. You know, it, it they just haven't been the same team, and I think – you look at first that matchup, if they can win that, because that's a very, you know, in the past, that's a white capsy matchup. Are they going to lose this match that people expect them to win? Or are they going to, you know, they're actually going to prove the daughters wrong. And then you go look at the same thing with San Jose. San Jose, they were the last team to start 
any sort of training after the training moratorium was lifted. They traveled to Orlando first so they could get more training in a good environment together because they haven't had a chance to train much. So logic suggests, again, the Whitecaps should be able to, you know, beat, beat them. Obviously, I say that, beat them cautiously. But last year, to be fair, Almeida, Matias Almeida kind of, you know, he, he, out, he outwitted Mark DeSantos in both games and the Whitecaps looked terrible. So I'm just you know, finger wagging here, obviously the listeners can't see that. And then, and then I'll come down to the last game and Seattle for as, you know, as good as they did last year in the final, we do have to remember that they got significantly weakened in the off season. And I think what was telling was that heading into their champions league games back in February, they had one center back because they lost, you know, they lost Kim Kihi, Chad Marshall retired. And next, you know, they only had one center back and, Obviously, now they've sorted out some of their roster issues, but I see a thin roster. In a tournament like this, I think we're going to see the importance of depth. And if I'm going to give credit to one thing the Whitecaps did this offseason, while we don't know how good the players they got are, they got a lot of them, and they look to have good depth. So for those reasons, I will say second is likely, first is possible. And, and something we heard a lot last year as well was that you know, guys like Inbaum and Ali Adnan and even Freddie Montero at times, Mark DeSantos talked about, you know, them being a bit run down from the amount of football they played, the amount of travel they'd had, the, you know, the long-term kind of wear and tear. And now we've had almost, you know, two full off seasons worth of time without significant matches or without a ton of significant matches. So there's no, there's none of those fatigue excuses from last year. Maybe there's the excuse of, Oh, getting up to match fitness, but at least all four teams in their group are in the exact same boat. And I think some of the guys that got a little run down last year, hopefully won't be facing that same type of thing. And when you have the addition of new players as well, I think there's, there's a lot of reason to be hopeful, but then again, you know, we could see that FC Dallas trap match early on and, and, and be talking about the same old Whitecaps in, in a few weeks' time here. Who knows? I just feel like we're, the Whitecaps are not going to come out all guns blazing as we, as we would want them to. They've routinely disappointed, whether it be against any of these opponents. I can remember bad games against every one of them. Uh, I can also remember good games against most of them, but I just can't see the Whitecaps making their supporters happy at this tournament. They routinely disappoint, and I'm not expecting anything more than that. So, so a good question then is, what would qualify as as success? Do you think at this tournament, like, is a is a second place finish in the in the group and a knockout in the first round of the elimination is is that a success, or or do we expect more out of this team at this point? I'd say a success is just making it out of the group stage at this point. Uh, I. At first glance, I wouldn't think that the Whitecaps would make it to the group stage. They were one of the worst teams in the league last year. There's no significant reason why they would be better other than maybe a couple impact players. Um, they brought in a lot of uh, youth, as you said, and they have a lot of players. We just don't know how good those players are. And so we'll have to see how they are tested in an unusual scenario as well against opponents who almost across the board are more experienced. Yeah, Alex, what, what would qualify to you as, as success for the Whitecaps in this tournament? I think at the bare minimum, you know, it, it is tough to, to say that about a team that finished basically last in the West last year and second last. But I think they can, getting out of the group is a minimum, I, I feel, just because 
if you're Mark DeSantos and you've made all these additions, you're actual Schuster, you've made all these additions, you're going through a lot off the field, obviously, you know, the firing of Mark Panis, fan unrest. I just think to, for all the training we've seen, we, and, the, and the thing is, you know, before COVID-19 hit, we had a chance to see this team in action and for training camp. We saw them in preseason. We saw the first two games. If those are any indication, this team does seem better than last year. I don't know if it's cautious optimism or what. They at, least, at the very minimum, and obviously last year is a pretty low bar to set, but they seem better than last year. And I just, I just think at the bare minimum, they should get out of the group. And then from there, it's, it's, it's tough to say because you'd like to say something concrete, but round of 16 or quarterfinal or semifinal. But the thing with the turn tournament is it's all luck of the draw you look at the world cup in 2018 well look at england they got colombia sweden and croatia and then they end up losing to croatia but you know you look at compared to a team like france who got what was it it was first round was argentina and then they got uruguay and belgium or you know like that side of the how the sides of the brackets are skewed so i'm thinking well if the white caps get out of the group and they play lafc in the round of 16 okay, they lose. Okay, I'm not going to be sitting there like the Whitecaps really missed their chance if they lose that game. But if they, you know, if they get out and they get a team, say, I don't know, like the Rapids. I mean, the Rapids are a really underrated team and I think they'd be good. But I, I'd expect them to do better against the Rapids than LAFC. So I think from what we know of the group, I expect them to qualify. And from there, I'll kind of temper my expectations based on who they play. But I think minimum, I think they can, they can and it, it you know, get out of the group and they should if they want it to be considered a success. And then after that, you know, at least to see if they get out of the group, they'll get regular season points. At least they'll get the benefits. And as for the trying to win, get the money in the CONCACAF Champions League spot, as close as they get, I don't expect it. So, uh, well, well, it's wait and see for that one, I'd say. It'd be a miracle if the Whitecaps somehow win this tournament. I see in no possible world are the Whitecaps getting – that prize money in the CONCACAF Champions League spot after like two months in Orlando. It, it would be pretty incredible though if it happened. It would be pretty white caps to win it. Like the only MLS competition that's like not MLS and you don't get a, you know, like you don't get a trophy really. Like you're going to get a trophy. I'm, but it's like, that'd be so white caps to, for their first MLS trophy to not be the supporter shield, not be the MLS cup, not be like any of those trophies would be this Disney cup. Mickey Musk. Well, well, the Whitecaps did win the uh, Disney World preseason tournament back in 2012. They beat TFC in the final. And I uh, remember that team had like David Cumiento and Lyra Shaq, Camilo, Eric Hasley, uh, Daigo Kobayashi maybe was even on that team. It was uh, all, all those old names. But they have won at this complex before. So they have that valuable experience that will propel them to win the MLS's back tournament. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first but yeah i guess we'll we'll shift away from the white caps talk but you know well i i want to throw in one last thing is well, is that it are we as a league for the mls are we too far down the road now where there's no chance that this tournament gets canceled like if the if the cases in orlando just continue to blow up over the next couple of weeks do you think there's are there any conditions under which they pull the plug on this tournament or are we so far down the road at this point that we're doing this no matter what happens? I think it's probably yeah. going to get started and cut halfway through. Interesting. So, yeah. I don't know, Alex, what do you, what do you think? Do you think, like, do you think there's a, there's a realistic possibility that this, 
this tournament, you know, either stops at some point or, or, or doesn't get its feet off the ground because it's interesting. We've seen like, I'm a, I'm a relatively big golf fan and we've seen players on the PGA tour test positive and they're just kind of carrying on as if not as if nothing had ha- has happened, but it's, it's kind of like, yep, this was the plan. We knew that it was something that was going to happen or certainly the possibility. And we're just keeping the course, you know, keeping our measures in place. But I wonder if there's like a boiling point where it can't be ignored. And especially in like a team sport, it can become a lot more uh, problematic much quicker. Well, it's like, yeah, you see golf, I think NASCAR, I even think something like baseball, if you're talking team sports, sports like that, you can get away with it. Obviously baseball, you're holding the ball. It's nasty. You know, if someone else puts the virus on it, but you can, you can find a way to make it work. But I think, soccer just if someone's sick it's just especially in a hub because in a hub let's be honest like the reason they're having a hub is to so that they can lax a bit on the you know you look at the bundesliga how strict their measures have been they can lax on that bit that's the beauty of being in a hub you can get away with having a little laxer measures but i just know if one player gets it it's going to spread through a team or a couple teams like wildfire because you're going to be close off the field on the field you're going to be tackling you know, on a corner, you can't really separate from someone on a corner. You're going to be hugging a guy on a corner in a wall and a free kick. Like what I'd say is to be realistic. I think if they're going to be a hub, I think they should just, the one thing that Sam and I, we've been concerned about for a while. And I think if they fix this, I would be a lot less skeptical is find a way to make those auxiliary stuff. And I'm not talking like medical staff and all these guys that teams bring with them in Orlando. I'm talking to people that live in Orlando that are going to go work in Disney and they're going to, you know, they're going to cook, they're going to clean, they're going to drive the buses. I, I think of those people because, you know, typically just the way the industry works, they're not exactly the most, you know, privileged people in the world. They're, they're doing this to put food on their plate for their family. And, you know, we know how this disease is. It's ruthless. It typically, you know, it, it goes after vulnerable people. And I think either they, they might have it and they won't know, and they'll bring it to the, the, the hub and it'll break out like you know go through everyone or vice versa i think if a player has it and they give it to the one of these poor staff and they bring it home and they you know they I, maybe they're living with their grandparents or someone and they give it to their grandparents and then you know something tragic happens and i'm worried about that i think if you're gonna have this make it so that these staff are either tested or they're in the bubble you can't have like neither that scares me that's what worries me and i think if they don't fix that i think an outbreak is to happen I wouldn't be surprised but I think if they fix that it's too late now to outright move it or postpone it teams are there you can't do it now I think the ideal window would have been like three days ago because that's when the San Jose you know first arrived so I think we'll see I think he'll start as Ben says and I think depending on how strict they are with safety protocols and to be honest with MLS right now they haven't exactly struck us with confidence we'll see from there but I'm not entirely positive but it's kind of going to be a wait and see and kind of see how they handle each little obstacle that gets thrown at them. I think our listeners can probably agree that it's better than what the Major League Baseball is doing. Uh, Major League Baseball is just playing a regular season basically as normal. Of course, it's shortened, but very few precautions uh, when it comes COVID-wise. They're not even going to a hub city or anything like that. And so I think MLS is probably uh, hitting the right note by going to a, a hub city. But yeah, you say they haven't struck that much confidence into us fans um, because they haven't really publicized their precautions of what they're taking. 
Yeah, and, and apparently, oh, a, apparently a hand a supposed handbook was given out to the players, kind of detailing the safety precautions and kind of you know tournament guidelines that were going to be in place. But at the same time, it was interesting to hear Mark DeSantos talk about, you know, the fact that the team just can't, if they're going to be there for, say, five weeks, they make it all the way to the finals. You know, he, he's realistic in the sense that he doesn't just expect them to go from the pitch straight to the hotel and never do anything. And it's like, okay, that's understandable from like a, a mental psyche perspective and keeping your players morale high. But at the same time, when he was kind of alluding to, you know, finding out what activities the team would do, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, what, what, what are you expecting to be able to do in a place where they're announcing, you know, seven, 8,000 cases each day. And, and obviously, you know, we've seen through guys like Yasser Kamiri and Yordi Reyna that the, the ability to listen and follow the, you know, fairly clear guidelines is it's not always clear cut. And I think, you know, the longer and longer we get into this sort of adapted way of life, the less and less people are willing to listen or abide, right? Like eventually people just get tired of being so disciplined. And so I think it's a, you know, it's a concern for the league. It's a concern for the players. Like you just can't, you can't control all these variables. You can only put the measures in place. And even if the measures are great ones, you just, you don't really know how it's going to pan out until you see it happen. I just think of the NHL. I think the one thing that worried me is because obviously in Vancouver right now, we're going through this whole hub city thing. And I look at what NHL did and I'm, you know, I'm very confident you have Dr. Bonnie Henry in charge and her and Adrian Dix and John Horgan. They, you know, they've, they've done a great job at managing this pandemic. And then I look at, you know, John Horgan, he's a big hockey fan. He wants the NHL to come. But then, you know, she's like, okay, if the NHL is coming, you listen to Dr. Henry. And, like, that worried me that the NHL was trying to put their, you know, their, they picked Vancouver because of how well they've handled COVID-19 cases, saw what Dr. Henry demanded of them and was like, nah, we're out. And that, that just worries me because it's like all the leagues are kind of the same. Like, if the NHL's doing it, and, like, let's be honest, in the NHL there's, what, like, teams worth billions of dollars, teams, like, at worst, like, the worst for, franchises worth like half a million and i look at mls where they're, they're much like, much less desperate than mls yeah it's not like mls where they're literally playing this to you know I'm no, they're not saying it as, as much but you know they're saving some teams with this money at least saving them now you know they're, they're, it's not we're not going to see any chivas cases because of this that worries me that that you know that if the nhl is doing this what the heck's mls doing because they need this money and already going to florida was a questionable choice Obviously, the huge Disney world of sports makes it realistic. But for that reason, I, I am worried. But I think we'll, we'll segue out of this Whitecaps talk. It was good. But, you know, we do have Mr. U Sports here. So we'll, we'll, we'll dive right into the, the U Sports. And one thing that is unfortunate is that unlike MLS and NHL that we just spoke of or MLB, it does not look like we'll be seeing U Sports in 2020. And as, you know, the announcements came out from – place you know organizations such as OUA or you know Canada West that there's just you know not going to be any fall sports and even for sports that are in two seasons like I think a hockey that are, that goes from fall to winter they're going to be revising how that looks you know I'm curious to hear Ben how, what your thoughts are on, on that decision and you know what what your, your general thoughts on that decision then we'll kind of also look a, a little later at soccer specifically because obviously you know we are a soccer podcast and with the agreement with CPL and the draft, we do have a 
more of a vested interest in the you, you, uh, the CPL U Sports, you know, scene. But kind of, what were your your general thoughts on the on the U Sports just fall cancellations in general? Do you think it's maybe a wise decision, okay, to take the hit now, but to come back stronger in the future instead of maybe kind of like some of these pro leagues have done, gone for half measures and just kind of prayed that it's going to be okay? In university sports, it would be hard to go for sort of half measures. There were some ideas uh, bodied around of possibly if student residences are closed, maybe you put uh, players in the student residences rather than the athletes or athletes in the student residences rather than just regular students who will be doing their classes online. While those ideas were discussed, it realistically is not something that U sports or Canadian university sports could pull off. So they had to cancel all the fall sports. That's football. Uh, football is the main one. Uh, but of course, soccer canceled as well. And the CPL um, greatly affected by that. But it's gut-wrenching for all these athletes who are missing out on a season that most of them won't get back. They're not being charged eligibility. But I know that a lot of players, they're not going to want to play six years of university sports, uh, which would be a four-year degree, but six years of athletics, whereas they're already usually spreading that out to five years. And, and Ben, just in terms of in terms of the financial implications, I know we've seen. I think it's the University of Alberta axing their their hockey program. But what are, what kind of greater financial ramifications have you you know potentially heard? Because obviously these a lot of these U sports programs run on relatively tight budgets already, and you know unlike say for example NCAA Division One football, they're not necessarily massive money makers. Usually the the recreation side of a program makes most of the money and then the athletics program ends up spending it. So what have you heard in, in that regard? That's exactly right. A lot of the revenue streams have dried up for a lot of these teams, whether it be the uh, recreational athletics programs with people paying registration fees, uh, whether it be even just straight tuition or student residences, all of the money has sort of dried up for these universities and they're having to invest more in remote learning technologies, which means they can't, invest in their athletics programs to keep them up and running. And so the University of Lethbridge, they axed their hockey programs completely uh, back in March. And then last week, the University of Alberta um, axed all of their two-term sports, um, that's basketball, volleyball, and hockey. Uh, for just this year, they don't have to wait two years to come back into U sports as Lethbridge would, but they're not going to play this year. And to me, I thought uh, University of Alberta was one of the more wealthy schools. Well, they are one of the more wealthy schools in the country. Uh, and they also have some of the most successful programs, 18 U sports hockey championships. I was going to say that's a, that's a premier hockey program. So it's a, it's a huge hit for the university to have to see that cut off for even a season or two. Yeah. Like even if season comes back on January 1st, which will be decided by October 8th in Canada West, it's still a tough situation for university of Alberta. And I'd be surprised if we don't see more schools uh, cut their two term sports programs, at least for the year. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the thing with U sports is I feel like, you know, it's still an, uh, obviously there's a big a push for it for more promotion, for more support, but you, especially if you compare it to the NCAA, it's more of giving these athletes a chance to play. It isn't like that NCAA where it's for, you know, as Sam kind of mentioned with NCAA football, for example, or basketball, or even hockey, it's a moneymaker. You fill stadiums. You, you play college football, even that's the highest level you play, you can become a star. Whereas, you know, U sports, a lot of these athletes, 
are keeping their dreams alive and playing. And I think it, it's a very competitive circuit. And especially, you know, Ben and, and I are both at Ryerson. We, he, ben follows the Ryerson teams very closely. I did have a chance to, to go follow some of the, the games. It's a great level of competition, but obviously exposure is a big problem. And, you know, it's not exactly a moneymaker. And I think this is going to be tough with the pandemic because as we've seen, the pandemic is already hitting professional circuits. And we talk about MLS and CPL all the time. I really think of, youth sports and how it's you know it's going to be affected and they can't really find a hub solution they can't do stuff like that because these people are athletes they're students first they're like us they go to school every day you know they and then they 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 happen to you know to be athletes it's not like ncaa where it feels like the athlete is the person first and then the student oftentimes these athletes are as much students as you and i are and i think that's going to be tough and it's going to be curious to see how they rebound from this because Again, it's not like they can play games and find alternative streams. I mean, who knows? Maybe they can finally generate, a, you know, some TV contracts so that CBC will do more than just one game a week or whatever. You can actually get more and more than just the local, you know, OUA TV or Western Canada TV. But it is going to be interesting, especially to see long term what the what U Sports kind of does to, to to kind of navigate these tough waters. Yeah, you mentioned we both go to Ryerson and uh, we both follow the Ryerson team teams fairly closely but you actually tried out for the Ryerson men's soccer team and didn't make it so uh you're not being too hard hit by the U Sports cancellations that's, as that's maybe you would have hoped to be uh, I just went for one open trial see how I could fare <laughs> yeah you die uh, for the for those listeners who don't know to get to the open tryout from the Ryerson campus is about an hour and a half on the Toronto Transit Company uh so it, it it's a haul um it's a good team. It's not a shot at Alex. Uh, and it's not, not taken. Yeah. Not taken. Um, but yeah, the, the Ryerson team, they're, they're top 10 in Canada regularly. Um, but it, 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 it does affect uh, a lot of U sports. I mean, you mentioned the TV contracts. They don't have that that they can sort of bank on like the CPL can. Uh, for the meantime, with their big contract they signed with MediaPro, they have U sports has a tiny, tiny contract with CBC that puts on like three games a year and the championships. So like, that's not going to keep them alive. Um, and programs are being cut also not because their internal revenue streams are drying up, but also uh, external revenue streams, such as government funding. That's why a lot of the Alberta schools are having trouble. Yeah. And I mean, you saw major, uh, major changes to Ontario regulations in terms of, in terms of funding towards schools as well last year. And that was before, the pandemic hit and uh, you know, also something that Alex and I have talked about ad nauseum on the podcast, but you know, even seen in, in non-university sport soccer at the developmental level and sports at the developmental level often kind of end up being the ones that bear the brunt of any, you know, financial, you know, tightness because we've seen what happened to Whitecaps FC2. We've seen what's kind of happened to the, you know, I'll do an air quotes development team with the white caps because, you know, going into the season prior to COVID-19, there weren't any matches scheduled. And obviously, uh, you know, that, that it doesn't matter now because there wouldn't have been matches anyways, but you know, you see the, the options continuing to shrink and shrink. I mean, um, you know, as someone who, who ha- has worked at SFU, like they've got, they offer a unique opportunity for Canadian athletes to play NCAA Division II soccer, but, you know, that is very much in doubt for this fall. Now you've got, you know, U Sports, which is, as you allude to, Ben, even if you don't lose that year of eligibility, 
it's not necessarily an option or a year you're going to get back. And you're looking at development teams drying up, like as much as pro sports has taken a significant hit, you know, teams that don't have teams and programs that don't have the money or the, the resources and the, the ability to be so creative, you're just seeing a year, if not multiple years, if not maybe the whole future of programs completely wiped out and just ever decreasing and decreasing options for, you know, young athletes either looking to take a step to the next level or just to kind of, you know, as Alex said, keep the, keep the dream alive for another couple of years. There are a few options that players can take. There are a number of players who come out from MLS Academy programs. They can't make the jump to the first team or they don't want to play with the quote unquote development team that the Whitecaps have, uh, or the same goes for um, the other MLS teams in Canada, Montreal Impact, TFC and TFC two. But I spoke to Chris Lee. He's an incoming freshman with the UBC men's soccer team, but he's also played in the Whitecaps Academy since he was 10 years old. He's gone up through all the levels in the Whitecaps Academy, including playing with their development team uh, last year. And he took a gap year from university to try and develop as a player, focus on CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers or Olympic qualifiers with Team Canada before going to UBC. But then this UBC option is taken off the table for this year. He's still going to go as a student but he's also going to be splitting his time training between UBC when they come back into a training protocol, as well as the Whitecaps Academy when they come back. And so he's going to be splitting his time, which isn't something you usually see in a regular year. But we've seen Nick Dasovich be uh, the, the head coach of the Whitecaps development program be particularly, you know, he's so embedded in the Vancouver soccer community. Uh, he's done a really great job of bringing guys in, having them at training and really like creating an inclusive Vancouver soccer community to keep these guys kind of fit and keep these guys in match shape. So that's, it's good to see that, you know, people are rallying during this and kind of finding options that, you know, keep, keep guys like that in good shape and hopefully, you know, hit the ground running if and when more options, you know, play in a league, play in university, crop back up. Oh well, yeah. No, you'd actually be surprised too. You mentioned how inclusive Dasovich is for training. And that's one thing the development program obviously we'd love them to play in the league i think we'll sing that we'll sing that song until maybe a, for, for a long time until it happens but i just think back to last year sometimes you come to whitecaps training i remember once the academy guys were passing by and obviously you know the development squad and then that day there was like five tss rovers players just training with them and i was like okay that's great because you know as we know the level between these teams aren't that different but before I stray too far, one thing I am curious because we we talk U sports. You know, we mentioned the hockey programs, fo- you know, football, volleyball. All these programs are affected. I think amongst U sports, you know, s- scenes. I think now because of what's happened in the past two years, soccer may be the most interesting one to follow. Obviously, football with the Vanier Cup is typically the more historical one. Obviously, U sports hockey's really gotten a you know, it's kind of developed a lot the past few years. And, you know, they're really attracting great WHL, OHL, and uh, QMJHL talent each year. But I think soccer may be the interesting one to watch because obviously, as many know, and if you, for whatever reason, any of our listeners do not know, the, the CPL partnered with U Sports so that there's some, you know, it's an agreement between them and each year. So basically how it works is that U sports, their season's only in the fall. It's only like three months, two months. It's not that long. So what teams can do is they draft CPL players in 
January or, you know, an offseason, December, November, basically in the offseason so that they can play with their team. And if they want, they can go back to university in the fall. So like towards the end of the CPL season, they don't get a chance to finish the season. But then they get to go back to their team and not lose eligibility. And they can even re-enter the draft the next year as long as they're not, a, you know, a senior. And I think that's a great agreement because you think of NCAA, for example, where it's the strict amateur rules obviously the U sports doesn't have that and you know you see players able to come back to U sports after playing pro but you know it, it's it's great for for soccer in Canada especially because you think NCAA where if a player wants to leave he has to leave and that's it and if he can't hack it at the pro game well that could be it for his career you could think at 21 he gets drafted by MLS team he's gonna make it he leaves his university boom he, he hits a roadblock and that's it at least with the U sport now you see someone like, you know, I think of Peter Shaw last year, who's awesome center back for Halifax. And, you know, he's like, okay, I want to go win a national championship. And he left. And, you know, they, they came close. They, 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 they got third place, if I'm not mistaken. And then he signed with Halifax again this year. I think it's someone like Abubakar Suzoka, which we're going to talk on in a, in a short minute here because he, he won some silverware the other day. But he was drafted by Forge. You know, he just didn't stick with him. So what did he do? He's like, okay, I'll go back to university. He proved the heck out of himself. And now he's a, he's one to watch across the country for many reasons. So, you know, with soccer, I'm curious to hear, Ben, kind of what you've heard. Because, you you know, you, you've talked a lot with a lot of people in the industry. And you, you know, especially from the youth sports soccer scene. How do you think this is going to affect that soccer scene? And how do you think it's going to work? Because with no soccer... There's still going to be a draft this fall. How are teams going to draft? Are players going to go back? Are we going to maybe see a bit of a different year, a gap year of sorts for this kind of CPL U Sports partnership as a result of all this? We'll probably see a draft this year. It's going to be very difficult for the teams to make their draft picks. I know speaking to a couple people involved with the CPL and U Sports agreement, they're running a sort of central scouting thing where they're going to have a group of people with the CPL, a group of people with uh, U Sports, and they're going to analyze all the games from last year uh, across the country, um, whether that be AUS, OUA, RSEQ, Canada West. They're going to take a look at every single game that was played and analyze these players as if it was a regular year. Um, of course, the draft eligible ones, not the seniors. Um, and they're going to draft based on last year's stuff, uh, which take it for what you will. It's not great, but again, you mentioned that with the CPL eSports draft, you can afford to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think one thing that just did pop into my mind, there will be some footage, because I think of League One Ontario, where a lot of the eSports players in Ontario spend their off-seasons. Well, as of last I've heard, they canceled their summer season, but they still might have a fall season. So players can be scouted there. I'm, I'm sure, you know, out west players, you mentioned like Chris Lee, training with development. I mean, it's not going to be much, but who knows if there's any sort of exhibition games or any sorts of games get played. There are some opportunities, but I do agree. It's going to be interesting. I do think mostly of guys that were drafted this past year. I think of that draft and I, because, you know, I think of those second or third, fourth year players, because how's it going to work? Are they going to just go back to school? But since there's no sports, they can still technically stay, stick with their pro team and not go back. It's going to be interesting how those guys are taken care of. Yeah, that, that'll be an interesting decision. I mean, we do have to see what the CPL is going to do. It sounds like this hub city thing, whether it be on Vancouver Island or somewhere else, 
is sort of coming together, possibly. It's a very confusing situation. There's nothing really solid coming about the CPL right now. So you do have to think, do players want to stick with the pro team in sort of a limited training capacity or go back to their university in a limited training capacity? Like the decisions are very foggy right now, Um, but players will have to make that decision at one point this summer, uh, whether they want to go back. And then as for the draft, if you take a look at Gabriel Batar, he was picked two years in a row by the same team. Maybe the draft picks are players who were picked last year and they're just picking out of the same class because they know that those are known quantities. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to see if there's some I, – I feel like at that point, I, knowing the CPL teams, there's a lot of camaraderie. They're definitely be in agreement. Like, okay, just pick the same guys. We call it a wash kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be very interesting to, to see how it affects the CPL. And, you know, because obviously they have a hub, but I don't know if they're – it's surprising because – with the CPL, one thing that's really stuck stuck with me is how quiet they've been. With MLS, they were, you know, they straight up came out and said, "We want to do a hub city. We want to finish our regular season." I'm looking, but if I'm going to be honest, between you know you and I, all of us three, let, let's be honest. CPL versus MLS, which which league is in a better position to start playing a regular season properly? It's going to be the CPL. You know, Canada's caseload is just significantly lower. Obviously, travel is a big issue. You don't want to have to see travel, but it's not like you're traveling between a place like Florida where there's 9K cases a day in another place. You know, at worst, the variation is to Vancouver with 10 cases or, you know, BC with 10 to 20 cases a day to Ontario with 100, but, you know, they're a lot bigger. I think they're in a position to, you know, do this hub city and then even restart the regular season at least compared to MLS who's trying to do it for whatever reason even though they're not really in a position to so you know is the CPL it's going to be interesting to see because one thing fans have started to complain about is they were really good at this in the first year but it's starting to become a question now is transparency and not that they've hidden stuff but it always feels like things are unnecessarily vague and ambiguous ambiguous sorry like I think of expansion all that time no expansion, no, or we don't know about expansion, then snap the fingers, Ottawa, Athletical Ottawa. And everyone's like, what? Like, how did this happen? And I think uh, just little news like news like that, it always feels unnecessarily vaguely ambiguous. I am going to be curious to see if, you know, how CPL returns and also how they handle this announcement. Because, you know, I could easily see them being like, no one's going to care about the U sports talent. You know, no one's going to care about the draft. If we forget about it, people are going to forget about it. And for that, it's going to... It's going to be interesting. I do think as things go along, I will be tempted to, you know, ask around and see if I can get any news on it. But it is going to be interesting to see how the CPL handles all of this as well, not even just from the U Sports perspective. Yeah, I know when U Sports or when Canada West uh, and the OUA canceled, as well as the AUS actually, uh, which is the Atlantic province, they at that point had no communication with the CPL on what the draft was going to look like. I spoke to the head of each uh, athletic conference other than the Quebec conference, the RCQ, which is still planning to play at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they'd had no communication with the CPL and uh, nor, nor with the CFL. They didn't really know what the um, pro drafts from eSports were going to look like on the other side of this. And you'd have to think that like from a, a CPL perspective for, you know, some of those, those athletes who are kind of somewhere in between the two, the, the, the sooner an announcement is made and, a, and a, you know, kind of, a clear decision as possible, the better for a lot of those athletes, they can start to 
you know, plan their lives for the next year or so. But, but up until that point, there's, you know, there's a lot of question marks and, and very few answers. And obviously, you know, kind of selfishly, especially Alex and myself have been, you know, banging the drum for a while that we'd like to, you know, see the CPL take advantage of, uh, of, you know, their kind of window of opportunity, but it, it kind of feels like that's already passed this point with, you know, a lot of major leagues having already come back and obviously the MLS, you know, not too far down the road, there's no way the CPL can really beat that out at this point. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of exposure they get if they do come back and, and what exactly the format looks like, but hopefully it's beneficial for a lot of young Canadian players one way or another. Yeah. You mentioned that they sort of missed their window of opportunity. Think of how much attention the CPL could have gotten if they, once they saw this coming, they just went to an instant hub city. They said, okay, Victoria, we're going to you. Uh, Bonnie Henry got on side and the CPL was playing games throughout all of this. Imagine the attention that would be at the CPL right now. If it was all the games on CBC, it'd be amazing. Yeah, it was, it was our dream. And we, we were talking about this, you know, two, two and a half months ago. And, and it's just kind of been, yeah, it's, it's been a grind. It's like, you know, even, even with returning to limited training, it was like, man, why is it taking so long? Why hasn't this happened? And I think Alex, you know, made a really good point that we're just seeing this. It's not purposeful secrecy, but it's just kind of purposeful limited amount of information on what's going on in the league office and what the, what the thought process is. And when, when you see that combined with kind of like a slowness to react to some of these situations, it's definitely frustrating. It's, it's dangerous. Let's just say, cause I know we are, we're all familiar with the white caps. I think of this as the white caps and then, you know, the white caps for a lot of their time and they were similar. And when it's good news, no one cares. It's just, I don't want that first scandal to hit the CPL because if they're being ambiguous and then they, something like bad happens, that's where stuff, you know, the metaphorical, bleep is going to hit the fan you know <laughs> maybe we'll put an explicit on the podcast one day but not today but you know metaphorically things are going to hit the fan and that's what worries me because it's just this unnecessary secrecy it's just not good fans love transparency you know like fans loved it when the CPL was like you know what we're going to do this we're going to explain this we're going to you know people love transparency and it just it just boggles my mind that sometimes people just forget about it and they go with this and not unnecessarily ambiguous or like, be honest. Don't be like, okay. Like I think a month ago, they David Klanikin, you know, commissioner of the CPL, they asked him, when's your hub plan going to return? And they like, Oh, within a few days. And they put out a statement, a statement, you know, that's official writing. This isn't some radio hit where he accidentally says something he's not supposed to statement saying in a few days, we will have an announcement. It's been like three weeks. Just like, Either be transparent or just don't say anything at all. I, you know, I love the CPL and I, I, the CPL has been great to me and I can't wait for it to come back. But that's just kind of, that's my two grains of salt, let's say. If I had to talk with them about it, it's just unnecessarily frustrating. And I think obviously it's not doing them any harm now, but it can't necessarily lead to much good. But Yeah, for sure. I think that the CPL as an organization and you speak of their transparency, they're sort of uh, becoming more like all of the other big American leagues uh, or big North American leagues, whether it be uh, MLS or the NHL or uh, NFL, sort of the epitome of it, of being sort of secretive and keeping everything to themselves until it's official. Like the Ottawa announcement, it was official at one point and that's when they made it public. But up until then they just played dumb about it. Um, 
I think one league that does transparency perfectly would be the Premier Lacrosse League in the United States. Uh, it's not a league that many of the listeners, if any of the listeners, would be familiar with, um, but it's a brand new lacrosse league. They make everything transparent, right down to who's creating content uh, for their online website. They, their entire hiring process is transparent. Everything is documented. It's perfectly transparent to the entire uh, lacrosse community. And I think that's sort of the route the the CPL was going down originally, um, but then they sort of veered off that. Um, and I think we can see that there's a bit of a displeasure from fans uh, with their recent decision. And not to get like super, super far off topic, but I was also, as, a, as an American football fan, super, super excited about the return of the XFL, where we saw, you know, reporters shoving mics in players' faces like, you know, it was a great game right after the guy missed a field goal. It's like, how do you feel about that? And just like breaking all these conventions. But then, you know, you see a league like that get shut down for a second time. And it, it does seem like the, like every time, you know, a league tries to kind of break the mold, a lot of the time they get kind of forced back into the box. And so, you know, you hope with something like that lacrosse league that they don't face those kinds of issues. And that, you know, maybe in the future, leagues continue to be a little more encouraged, especially in this, you know, social media era where everyone's talking about everything instantly. I think you can, you can gain a lot of fans and, and a lot of interest just by being different and being honest. And, and so maybe at some point the CPL takes the hint a little bit and, and veers a little more in that direction. It would be exciting to see. Yeah. Just, just, just trend towards our, our next topic here. And then we'll, 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 we'll go on this topic quickly because it is white caps, the youth sports, a mix of everything. And we'll, we'll kind of wrap off with some, some more youth sports talk. But to kind of go, one thing that is good timing for, for Ben to come on the show is that uh, Abubakar Suzoko, uh, formerly of the UDM Karabani, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he won the youth sports male player of the year, which... For those listening, they don't know, that's kind of a big deal because typically it's been a football, hockey, everything but soccer basically dominated award. How, I don't know how, how long the award's been given out, but only twice has it been a soccer player, and this is the second time. And Abubakar Suzoko, for Whitecaps fans, might be a familiar name because in case, you know, it feels like months ago, but back in January, he trialed with the Whitecaps and actually did really well, which is interesting because he was with Ford, as I mentioned last year, he went back to UDM, dominated, had an awesome season, signed with Halifax, and then before he even kicked off at Halifax's training camp, he trialed with the Whitecaps and was one of the last cuts. And the only reason they just the Whitecaps didn't sign him was just because they had too many bodies with the arrivals of Leonard Awusu and and uh, and Daniel Bikel, and they knew that. They wanted to keep him, but they knew if he came with no development team, no second team, there just wouldn't be minutes for him. And, you know, I just think it's a, it's an awesome story for, you know, Abubakar Suzoko. And I know Ben's quite familiar with Suzoko because for those who don't know, his, his website, we forgot to shout out at the beginning. So shout out now. I'll shout it out at the end. But 49sport, so 49-sport.com. Uh, he covered all, all things youth sports so every province so if you're listening for some reason if you're Newfoundland shout out to you all the way to Victoria he's got you got you covered so f- make sure to, to check his website out and follow follow their Twitter but with his website he went to the youth sports soccer finals in uh, Montreal last year and he got a he got a catch the tournament in that tournament UDM they they won their first uh, two games made the final and they fell narrowly short to 
UQTR, so University of Quebec, Trois-Rivières, who were led by the likes of Gabriel Balbanati, who's uh, drafted by Forge. And kind of what were your impressions of Suzuko from that short tournament? Because, you know, to be honest, before the Whitecaps, I mean, I got to see a bit of the U Sports tournament, but I hadn't seen that much of him. Kind of what were your thoughts of him and how how you think, how, how important do you think this award is for soccer, for CPL, for him to win this honor? Well, just to put it in perspective, there's over 7,000 male athletes in U Sports. You're talking about everything from hockey to track and field, soccer, football. So, for Abubakar Sissoko to win this award, it's pretty remarkable. And of course, you mentioned that he's the second ever soccer player to win it and first uh, in this millennium as well, um, with the last coming in the 99 2000 season. Um, but yeah, he's a player who is one of these textbook examples of how U Sports is being treated as a professional platform now because he's used his last two years, especially with UDM, uh, where he won the championship here in Vancouver, and then he uh, nearly won the championship at his uh, home field, Sepsum, uh, in Montreal, of course, falling to UQTR. But he was dominant throughout the tournament. He was on the first all-star team in both tournaments. Uh, and knowing the CPL coaches, they don't watch a lot of the U sports throughout the regular season. They really place an importance on the uh, championship tournament, and that's where Suzuko shines. So, he shined at the right time. Uh, the snapshot of his career is perfect, um, but it's a, he's a player that can shine outside of that snapshot as well. And it's just lucky that he was good enough in that time window because, of course, he caught the eye of Forge and then Halifax. It's very interesting, too, that you mentioned the U Sports tournament because I think it's pretty unique, though, how it's structured. I think well, a lot of most teams are similarly structured, but I just think it's pretty awesome how obviously you play a bunch of games and then, you know, you get ranked and then you do the playoffs. And I like how the national championship, I just like national championships. It's nice that at the end of the day, all of the best teams in the, in the, in the country, because, you know, I think most, most university sports do this. And I think that's just one of the beauties of university sports. There's just something nice about regional competition leading to a big national championship. There's something just nostalgic, maybe because it reminds me high school or whatnot you just don't see that in professional sports and I think of teams there's always that intrigue okay this maybe this you know you think a UBC all oh, this UBC team is running rampant or you know you think of teams dominating the region and they have to go prove themselves at the national championships and I think as you mentioned that's a great spot to scout because you know it's the best of the best it's all of the best regions and I think it was you know it's, it's good to see Suzuko stand out and to kind of show what you sports can done because it's pretty you know crazy to think that he almost signed with the Whitecaps and from U Sports directly and I think it's kind of an indication of the talent level in U Sports and you know you've, you follow very well you've watched a lot of U of T and Ryerson the soccer last year and you know how, how would maybe just as a question how would you rate the level of the league and kind of what st stood out to you from watching and kind of you know is this going to be the start of a many gems making their way up from U Sports to professional soccer you think? Suzuku, not just the start, but there's been a lot of players. You mentioned Peter Shalley. Uh, he was with Cape Breton Capers and then, of course, Halifax and then returned to Cape Breton and back to Halifax. So there is a lot of talent that does come through U Sports, but is the level of U Sports the MLS? No. Is it the CPL? No. Is it USL? No. Is it USL League One? Possibly. It could very well be a similar level to around USL League One. And every now and then we do see those players make the jump up to whether it be the CPL and even the MLS. And so I think 
the level of esports is rising. The league is has trended down to a level where the players are university age, where it used to be uh, guys doing their master's degree, like uh, 30 years old, they were in university sport. Um, but now it's at a age level where these guys are young, they're developing still, and the league could get even better and maybe even up to the level of the USL championship. I think just to, to add something to that from, from my time spent in Ontario watching and you know covering some OUA soccer, I think you definitely see guys out in the pitch at that you know USL League One kind of level. I think the only difference you maybe see is just the, the talent drop off when you look in terms of squad depth is just different. You don't have that same, you know, when you're talking about a professional roster, you've got relatively consistent quality throughout. And I think, uh, you know, especially on the weaker U sports teams, you see maybe one or two players of that quality, but then the, the level kind of drops off. But I think the more and more we see players like Sissoko show that this is like a genuine pathway to professional soccer in Canada, the more you're going to see players consider it as an option. I think we'll see that squad depth over the next 10 years as long as, you know, programs kind of stay in place, they will, the way they are, they should really improve. But I think right now that's probably the biggest difference from, from at least what I've seen. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we might be seeing players like Ryan Raposo, a Canadian who went down to the NCAA, but maybe that level of player will choose to stick in Canada when they see that there's a professional pathway, um, whether it's Suzuko, Shale, Jordan Haynes at Pacific FC, these guys proving themselves in the professional game now and international game in some cases uh, who came through U sports, maybe these high talented players who would choose to go to the United States or go overseas, choose to play university soccer in Canada. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking of because typically I think of a lot of Academy prospects, a lot of them we followed over the years. What would happen is once they hit 17, 18, if they weren't with the first team already, it was kind of like, what did they do? Most of them either just went to NCAA or gave up soccer. Or they just kind of went to youth sports kind of, you know, it was more, it wasn't as serious. Obviously there's a chance to play for a national championship, but I feel like now we're starting to see the emerges of, you know, a true career path. It's okay. I want to get my education. I don't want to go in the U S I want to stay at home. I want to go and I can still, my career isn't over because it kind of felt like before youth sports, at least in soccer, it was kind of like a death knell for the career. It's kind of like, okay, where do you go after this? Obviously, there's the, the cream of the crop always rises. There were some players that played youth sports and they moved on to, you know, professional sports or they went on to different leagues. But for the most part, at least, you know, for, for most players, it was kind of it because, you know, everyone knows about the big names, but it feels like now a lot more people are going to be watching youth sports soccer, scouts, media, you know, at least in the soccer scene. And then these players are going to get noticed and, you know, they're going to go to a tournament and next, you know, they're drafted the CPL or there's going to be 16 CPL teams or there's going to be a CPL Div 2 where, the, you know, maybe the guys who weren't good enough for the CPL Div 1, they can go to Div 2. And I think it's going to be great to see it emerge as a pipeline because I think it's, it's great to have this opportunity to continue your schooling and do professional sports and do all of this and not have it like the NCAA where it almost feels like a scam sometimes where you're stuck in and you kind of have to go, you have to commit to a school early and you can't, you don't have this freedom of choice and movement. I think this is going to be interesting to see, you know, who commits. Cause I think there's going to be, as you say, there's going to be some real good prospects. who are going to be 18, 19 out of MLS academies. I think especially, or even think of teams like FC Edmonton as a good academy or, they're going to be like, okay, you know what? I can't, I haven't made it pro yet. 
I think I'm, I'm almost there. I'm, I'm going to go get my degree and I'm going to go play youth sports and it's going to help me. It's not going to be me sacrificing or giving up my career. And I think that's going to be great. We're going to see the quality really improve as a result. Yeah, I see the quality of the U Sports and uh, even the players going up to the CPL improving over the next few years. But, I mean, you look at guys like Joel Waterman. He's made it all the way to the MLS with the Montreal Impact. And so that's an example of having a player who made it through U Sports with the Trinity Western Spartans. He's now in the real public eye of the MLS, whereas the CPL is still sort of niche uh, in this country when it comes to following sports. But the MLS, people know what that is. People watch the Montreal Impact. They see Joel Waterman, they think, oh, where'd this guy come from? Oh, he came from university sports. Maybe that's an option that uh, I could take. Maybe that's an option my son or daughter could take. And then that helps players of high talent come to U Sports because they see it as a professional pathway. Another way that you could see U Sports sort of become more of a league of choice rather than the NCAA is just more pub- pub- publicity. Uh, they've got to deal with CBC now that if there was a national championships this year, it would have been on the national network and every game it would have been on CBC would have had the whole CBC broadcast package over it. It would have looked great and it would have looked uh, professional like the NCAA does and wanted players would see that on TV and wanted to be part of that. Um, that's something that I know a lot of players see. They see the games, they just want to be a part of it. Um, but of course that's not going to happen. We did see one going on a bit of a side note here. We did see one uh, CBC broadcast of a youth force championship that was actually with COVID because everything was canceled. And so CBC sports put their entire broadcast package on the U sports curling championship for two days um, back in March. And so they had uh, Scott Russell and the whole CBC crew and the whole big, nice broadcast package, all broadcasting U sports curling, which is something, something to remember. Shout out to Queens. Pretty, pretty decent curling program there. doesn't get a lot of publicity, but yeah, shout out to my alma mater. But, uh, I had a question for you, Ben, like if you were, I, I say kind of, you know, you sports soccer commissioner for a day, what would you like to, what are things that could be changed or what would you like to see in terms of like integration and communication with the CPL? Like what would make for a better pathway or a better experience for those you sports soccer athletes as they kind of look to both hone their craft at the U sports level and then like work their way up to the pro ranks. What are, what are some things that could be changed or improved upon? I think an ideal situation would be having equal facilities for everybody. I know Ryerson has some fantastic facilities, but they're out in the middle of nowhere um, in Downsview park, which is our over an hour away from the campus. U of T has some older facilities, but they're right on campus. So maybe that offers a more regular training advantage and, UBC, of course, has access to the Whitecaps pitches in some capacity, and that's a great advantage, whereas Thompson Rivers has a community park to play in. So there's a big disparity in the training and the facilities that people have. If you had that sort of equal across the board, it could create a more equal developmental pathway. But of course, that's not something that is easily changed. As for something that I could easily change in uh, sort of a short amount of time or something that you can just sort of implement into youth sports soccer, I can't really think of any because schools are so different. Schools operate as their own entities and they just compete against each other. So they have a minimum standard. I guess you could raise the minimum standard, but you might in, inadvertently be eliminating some schools in that regard. But in, in terms of, are, are there things that the CPL could do, not necessarily saying that these are things they're going to do or that would maybe necessarily be in their best interest as a league, but are there, 
are there things that the CPL could be doing to kind of like increase the, the integration from U sports? Obviously they have the draft, but are there, are there other things that could potentially be put in place in that, in that sense? I think it'd be great to have U sports players train with CPL teams. So the coaches and uh, organizations get familiar with these players, because if you're just seeing them at the championships or on tape throughout the season, you're not, you don't really know who you're getting, but if that agreement can be extended to playing with or training with uh, CPL teams throughout the year, that could offer much more depth and scouting for the draft. I have a few ideas actually now that you mentioned. I feel like one would be, obviously this is tougher because this is more of a traditional thing. Either some sort of coordination with the U sports schedule, because what if soccer became a spring sport and like their season was played from like January to March, April, and then the CPL season starts in April there's a little more coordination. There doesn't have to be that choice between, you know, playing, sticking in the CPL or going back to university for its, you know, a title. But obviously that's more of a complicated one or else. I like your idea of training or even just like kind of using youth sports teams, kind of like farm teams in hockey. Like you need bodies to train with, you can call them up. If you need bodies to straight up play, you know, play with like you, you're running low on rosters. Because one thing that stuck out to me is, I went to Pacific versus Forge last year. It was mid-September, and Pacific had 14 players. Like, I was looking. They, they had three guys on the bench. Like, that's ridiculous. What, what, what if they could have, you know, brought some UBC guys with them for a trip or, you know, had some sort of agreement that allowed them to just bring in bodies to play, kind of like a minor league setup, or just have more of that interconnection. And you know what? Obviously, you have to kind of draw a line so players aren't just zigzagging around and getting tired and whatnot, but maybe having more of that, you know, connection to, to give teams in the CPL and the advantage and also help the U-sports quality and have that access to facilities and have that, you know, experience knowing that, okay, my best player just this weekend, he got called up to Forge and he had a heck of a 30 minutes off the bench. It's going to be great for his confidence. It's going to be great for his career. I don't know. I feel like there could be, Obviously, it's tough because, you, you know, you sports is amateur and the professional. But obviously, I think with this agreement, there's potential for stuff like that, that sort of collaboration. And you and have the, to th- – sorry, sorry, Ben. Uh, you go yeah. ahead. Okay, thanks. And the line between amateur and professional and U-sports is already blurred uh, because you have players who will go play in the CPL and then they'll come back to U-sports. So it's not this hard line that you sort of imagine with the NCAA. And you have to think that, like, the the more, Alex, as you said, that – you know, if you have three or four players that go train with a professional team on the weekend and then they're back on your campus a week later, they can impart some of that professional experience and professional level of coaching down to the U sports level. Like it's a, it's a two way street in the sense that you could kind of, you're not only going to raise the level of CPL because you have players that maybe come in full time more ready, but you're also going to bring that you know, professional level of training and quality down to the U sports level and hopefully massively improve the quality of that product as well. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. One thing I do mention, one, one priority should definitely be the education of the player. So I'm thinking like there has to be, it has to work. You just can't like bring players like, okay, screw your exam, whatever. We need you for a weekend. Like there have to be some sort of guidelines drawn out so that like, I don't know, maybe you can only call up guys when you're at home or like, Maybe there's a pool of players in each city, like each, you know, each, obviously Toronto has, York and Forge would have an advantage because there's so many universities, but maybe there's a pool. So, okay, Forge has like 12 players for whatever reason. They go to Pacific. Okay, they're allowed to use four UVic players on the bench. Like, 
obviously it'd be rules like because I, I think education would be a huge thing because travel is a problem and in Canada, you know, it's there's no close destination for teams. But I think if they could sort that all out, I think it could be it could be interesting to see. If I'm being honest, yeah, it'd be great to see more youth sports players getting a chance in the CPL. Um, but of course, they are student athletes, so they do have to prioritize school, and that's a sentiment shared by youth sports as well. But yeah, before we, I guess, before we conclude, we are towards the end here. We were talking about Suzuko and and Waterman and how important that is. I think, I don't know, maybe maybe this is going to put you on the spot here, but who do you think you're, some names that could really stick out to you as being the next Waterman, that next guy who's one season playing TSS and then next you know he's CPL and MLS? You think, obviously, Suzuko is a shout, but are there any other names that you've seen in the both the CPL and youth sports? I'll start with, with you, Ben. You seem to have something uh, on your mind, and I'll, I'll see with Sam, and I'll even see if I can throw some names out myself to guys to, uh, for the listeners to watch if the CPL season does come back and youth sports as well. It's difficult to pick because a lot of these players do shine in their senior seasons. Um, and that's really where they raise their stock. And that would go for Sissoko. That would go for Jordan Haynes. Um, but as for a player who could sort of come up and possibly be that next uh, Abubakar Sissoko, none really stand out to me that come to mind right now. Uh, I'm sure there are a few. There's, a goalkeeper at Trinity Western. Um, I'm blanking on the name. He Coline's uh, the last name. He's brother of Simon Coline, um, but he's been a quality goalkeeper. They won the the uh, Canada West Championship this year, and I could see him making the jump up this this year or the year after. Um, but I think he's one of these players, and of course, goalkeepers always have a bit of time that more time that they need to develop as well. So I don't think we'll be seeing him within the next two years. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go for a bit of a homer take here. And I guess this is a bit of a cheat because it's not necessarily you sports. But uh, the Polisi brothers up at SFU, oh, yeah. oh, I mean, they've one. already had offers from CPL teams, but, you know, chose to – I wrote an article about them this year about how they're, you know, they were ready to rev up for their senior season after kind of a disappointing 2019 campaign. And obviously that's, like, massively under threat right now. We don't necessarily know if – they're going to have a season to play. But those two guys, very different profile of players for brothers. You've got a, you know, you got a rugged kind of central defensive midfielder, and then you've got a pure, you know, skill number 10. And so, but they're both very attractive profiles and profiles that, you know, CPL teams could definitely use. And I think both of these guys have the maturity, the intensity, the potential to, you know, not only be impact CPL players, but maybe, progress further Sumner down the line it's it's kind of a time will tell thing but you know big shout out to SFU and, and those two guys and I think only good things for them coming up in the future that's a great shout the police brothers because honestly TSS Rovers like I think well I think that's where I saw more of them uh obviously I went to SFU last year so I did watch a few of their games and uh also shout out to our photographer Kevin he was on episode I think six or seven he'd go shoot TSS games and I'd go just you know with some of our writers, we'd write about it and watch, just watch because it was fun football to watch. And I think, I think a Zach Verhoeven, former TSS Rover, he's going to be one to watch. I think with Pacific, he's going to be a breakout star for me. I think, you know, you think of the Polisi brothers, you think of Joel Waterman who went through TSS, you think of Patrick Metcalf who's signed with the Whitecaps, he went through TSS. I think that's a good shout for a lot of you know, a lot of players that went there. And I think another name for me, at least from sticking local names, I think someone like Tommy Gardner with Pacific is definitely one to watch because he was drafted highly last year. 
Pacific blew out his knee. You know, he came back in time for the U Sports season, had a great season, and then they drafted him again. I think that will make him one to watch because he's coming off that knee injury. No one really knows what he can bring, but he's a real quality midfielder, came up through the Whitecaps Academy. I think if he can get minutes in the Pacific midfielder, a midfielder, he's going to be one to watch. I think he can really make that, you know, he's still young. He's only in his early 20s. He could easily, I could see him by the time he's 24, 25. If he puts it all together, he could make, you know, he could make the jump up. And I look at a lot of guys drafted, obviously someone like Peter Schall is obviously a shout. He was such a rock for Halifax last season. He really, you know, he, he just, he's really complete center back. I also think of someone like Gabriel Batar, obviously he's an easier pick, but you know, he's, he was first, you know, first overall pick the other year for a CPL. But I think of him, he's a really talented player and he's just dominated at Carlton, but he just didn't get the opportunity because he was drafted by Cavalry, probably the one team that just couldn't afford to give him that many minutes for how deep their forward line is. They already had Jordan Brown and Dominic Malunga last year. So I think guys like, you know, I think some of those guys were drafted at the top end of the, the CPL draft this year. I think Corey Bent over at Halifax, watch out for some of these guys. There's definitely going to be, you know, some noise. I also think just another name, Gabriel Balbinotti, he was with, uh, he was with uh, UQTR and he's drafted by Forge. He's a one, you know, he's a little tricky, tricky player and he had one heck of a, Esports final championship. I think it's going to be only a matter of time. And I think this Joel Waterman just situation, obviously, it was, it was a bit of, you know, there was a lot of great timing how he got out of Trinity, got drafted. He ended up having a great season with Calvary at the back. He established himself. He got signed to Montreal, which was great. But then he got the minutes because every Montreal center back decided just to blow out their knees within three weeks and he got to play in the Champions League. I think people were like, okay. If this guy, four months ago, he was playing in the CPL final and he's out here against Olympia, against these CONCACAF teams, even in MLS where he had to play due to injury, he's holding his own. Okay, these people can play because we're being honest here. I don't know. I watched a lot of CPL last year, at least, especially in the second half. Joel Waterman, like as talented as he is, especially on the ball, and that's why Cherry Henry wanted him because of his talent on the ball. There's a lot of good center backs out there that, you know, I think of an Amir Didich who traveled with the Whitecaps as well. They just didn't have room to sign him. I think, you know, I, I think it just there's a lot of names that I can't bring them all off the top of my head. But I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of talented center backs. And I think if Waterman was getting signed, I even think of Dominic Zator on his own team and, and Cavalry. I think of those kinds of guys. I think we're going to see a bunch coming out soon. And I think uh, it's, it's, only, it's only a start. I think – and the path isn't necessarily going to be as, you know, as linear as, as it was for Waterman, for everyone. Obviously, that was kind of, you know, the, the skies parted and he sort of ascended up through the ranks. But I think, as you said, you know, overall, the, the quality of these guys is going to show through. And having a couple guys like Waterman kind of on the front line showing that it is a possibility, you know, for him when the stars line means that these guys are going to get more opportunities down the line. And it's, uh, yeah, tons of tons of prospects and even you know the ones we're not talking about there's going to be some surprises as well because guys you know guys improve at at a young age and and take big jumps forward and we're going to be I'm sure talking about a few guys in a couple years that we haven't even really you know thought of at this point. I guess one of those surprising names that uh, sort of comes to mind could be uh, Carlton and now York 9 draft pick Stefan Kurejevanovic. Uh, Feisty striker, um, long name, Broadcasters aren't going to like Kurad Dravanovic. 
Um, but uh, he could definitely impact York 9 uh, after his success with Carlton over the last few years. That's uh, definitely – no, he's a good shout. He definitely uh... – he made some. Uh, he made some noise. That Carlton team was pretty, pretty good. It is surprising that they, you know, wasn't UQTR the one that upset them, or was that that game? Because everyone kind of expected Carlton to this to be their year after falling short in Vancouver a year ago. And I think with guys like Batar and I don't even want to try and say this name, Karajevanovic. Karajevanovic. With you know, they had, they had a good they had a good team. I think. U Sports draft. I think it's obviously going to be interesting to see which players get minutes because I think if someone like Waterman, he was drafted in the second round, yet he got more minutes than someone like Batar, who was drafted in the first round by Cavalry. So it's obviously a, an opportunity roulette. But you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see which players get that chance and which players ascend through the ranks, and you know which which players are going to be the ones to to break through because obviously the draft it kind of felt watching. It, this year, it felt more of like there was a lot of agreements already. Don't pick this player. We want our local player, et cetera, et cetera. And I think obviously, it, you know, it's going to – teams wanted players for reasons, but it would be interesting to see who kind of rises through. But there are a lot of good names, as we kind of threw out there. But I guess to, usually this is where we'd go for our around-the-world segment. Well, we, you, you can stick around for this one, Ben, because I don't think we have much around the world to say this week. Uh, last week – it's been a lot longer lastly, but as we know, Bayern Munich won the title. Uh, and they won the title last week, so this weekend was kind of a quiet slate of games. All the games were played at once to avoid, you know, the classic don't lose against the team on purpose for this, corruption, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it was at 6.30, so I, I, I'm sorry to report that uh, due to my uh, alarm malfunction, I missed my chance to watch one or two Bundesliga games, so... I did watch some Premier League games. I've kind of been a bad luck magnet. I mean, we talked about the Sheffield game last week, the absurdity of it. And then I think I watched five Premier League games. I watched like four draws and three nil-nil. So I just, I don't know, Sam, maybe maybe the K-League's bringing you a little more joy than the Premier League has lately. Well, the, well, the Liverpool K- Yeah, Liverpool won the Premier League, which which we're trying That's not true. to talk about, talk about because uh, I, have some, I have some mixed feelings there. But yeah, in the, in the K-League, which, you know, for anyone who's been a real dedicated listener, we've been talking about a little bit, it was really more of the same. Uh, Jun Buck and Ilsan Hyundai just continue rolling, and uh, my boys gang won or have kind of fallen off a bit. They lost 2-0 to Pohang, and then you've got Daniil Henry's Blue Wings taking another L and letting in three goals against Daegu. So it's been it's been a bit of Strugglesville in Suwon recently, and they're they're down in eighth. So uh, you know work to do for one of those top six spots. But yeah, that's that's your rapid fire Kaylee Groundup. I mean, hey, my my guys, the one we had an intense debate about, uh, Siong Nam. Siong Nam, or is it Siong Nam? Was it that? Wasn't it not Sangju? No. No, no. Siong now, they they were up up in third, but now they've lost three in a row. So (laughs) not a night. Tough scene there. Well, one, one. They're tied with Suwon, so yeah. Make that make of that what you will about Suwon, but (laughs) but yeah, Ben. Any anything that stood out to you, kind of around the world in soccer this past week? Any league, any leagues on there. We don't. We'll be talking about anything. (laughs) Saudi Arabian second division got back to uh, training this week. I. No, uh, uh, Ahmed Al-Ghamidi, who actually had three appearances with Pacific FC last year, he's playing in the Saudi Arabian second division now, um, and they got back to training this week. So uh, he is Canadian, Saudi Arabian, represents Saudi internationally. 
Um, so there's your bit of Canadian content from the Middle East. Yeah, you heard it here first. Shout out to Ahmad Al-Gamdi. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that pretty much wraps up this jam-packed 20th episode. I think this was a, a good episode. I think one thing Sam and I will be fortunate, uh, this was finally a slow news week. And honestly, like, I love myself the news week, but just after how each heavy each news week was, is always like a firing this or pandemic this. It was nice to just have a calm week. And I think it was great to have you on the show, Ben, talk some youth sports, talk developmental soccer, because as listeners will know, Sam and I, we do love developmental soccer. We love the idea of, you know, growing the game in this in this country. And I think it was great to have you on. You've got a good perspective on youth sports. You followed it a lot very closely. And I think, uh, Thanks, you know, thanks for coming on. And I think uh, if listeners are to, to look for you, I'd say drop your, your socials and drop your, your website so they know where to, to find you. Yeah, you can find me uh, on social media at bensteiner 0 uh, My birth year 2000, that's why the 00, a lot of people ask. And the website is uh, 49-sport.com for everything new sports, really. We've got around 20 writers from coast to coast. All right, beauty. And I guess, as usual, you can find me at Alex Gongiruzic on Twitter at BTSBenCity and BTSBenCity.com. I think uh, as this MLS tournament wraps up or starts to come up and the Mark Panis news uh, is kind of going to the back of our minds, we're not forgetting about it, but, you know, it's kind of nothing you can do about it at this point. I am starting to write up some some more about the the, the tournament. I'm thinking that, you know, maybe analyzing the squad, kind of predicting, doing a preview, at least, you know, the usual shenanigans so stay tuned for that and sam i guess last word over to you yeah samuel underscore rowboat on twitter um 86forever.com we're going to start revving up our coverage kind of preparing for the matchups and and kind of previewing the tournament from a white cast perspective and uh ben yeah thanks so much for coming on always fun to talk you know something a little different we've done a lot of global soccer white caps news recently but to to kind of get back to you know, the roots and the developmental stuff in Canada was really, really good and you provided some really valuable perspective. So thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, and yet all our listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon with what's going to be episode 21, which is crazy to say, but glad to have made it through 20 with my co-host Alex. And uh, yeah, looking forward to many more. Still going strong and stay safe, everyone.